This morning, we are going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 12 through 24. And we're going to be looking um, at, uh, at, at these verses. I'll be uh, bringing them up on the screen. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, the Luke, chapter 14. You can find this on page 874 in the Pew Bible. Luke, chapter 14, verses 12 through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus uh, um, said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said, to, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to, those, to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master, and then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city. And bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done. And still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Now, no matter what culture you are in, there are always rules about what is, uh, what is appropriate to do when you're eating a meal together. I was shared recently uh, uh, earlier that uh, in, in earlier times at a meal, um, the men would be served first and then followed by the women and then last would be the children. You know, how times have changed. Yeah. Um, now, we may have largely abandoned these social rules, uh, um, but uh, some still remain. Uh, you generally need to eat a bowl of ice cream with, with a utensil, right, and not just with your bare hands, uh, and uh, you know, generally avoid making a complete mess of yourself at a meal. We try to avoid that. And it's also, generally speaking, still not a good idea to criticize your host and tell them how they should really throw a party next time. This is precisely what Jesus does. And so we are in the middle of this scene of of where Jesus is, or this dinner that Jesus is at, 
And there's four different moments, four different scenes uh, from this dinner, this meal, uh, that Luke wants us to be aware of. He's just, again, it's kind of like he's saying, look, Jesus went and ate at the leader of the Pharisee's house, and let me tell you what happened. And there are four things you've got to know. And we looked at two of those things last week. And so we're concluding that by looking at these final two scenes this week, which focuses largely on the idea of banquets. And, um, uh, and so, uh, and so Jesus is with the Pharisees. He's with the leaders of the Pharisees. This is the cream of the Pharisaical crop right here. And in these two scenes, Jesus confronts, uh, not just them, but also us in confronting our view of human relationships that are often, um, all too often defined in a commercial sense. And he also presses us to, in how we would respond to the gospel of God. We'll look at each one this morning. So first, Jesus challenges us to rethink how we approach our relationships. In verses 12 to 14. And he does so by giving some instruction of how to throw a banquet. <clears throat> So Luke uh, says Jesus turned to the man who had invited him and gave him some tips, some advice for his next party. And he said, when you know, when you give a dinner, don't invite your friends, family, or rich neighbors just so they will return the favor. Instead, uh, uh, invite the, te- the destitute, uh, even those who are not permitted in the temple complex because they are considered unclean, namely the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And you should invite those people precisely because they cannot repay you. They cannot return the favor in kind. But he says, it is not that you won't be repaid. You will in fact be repaid by the Lord at the resurrection. Jesus here is working from a principle found in Proverbs chapter 19 verse 17. Where it says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. And he will repay him for his deed. And Jesus is is here correcting a major deficiency in that culture. That hospitality and generosity was largely defined by hosting parties for family, friends, and other influential people in town. It brought social status to host parties and then to be invited to their parties in return. But Jesus says that the best hospitality is given, not exchanged. It is not an act of generosity for me to throw a party for those who would do the same for me. Now this does not mean that Jesus is condemning birthday parties for our children, uh, or family reunions, or social gatherings. It just means that we don't need to make them into something that they're not. We don't need to act as though if we do the, when we do these things as if they are you know, deep acts of generosity on our part. Having dinners where we invite one another to our homes and vice versa is a time of wonderful fellowship. It's just not generosity. Now in doing so, uh, in doing this, Jesus highlights that how we approach others Other people matters. Jesus is not 
condemning having, like I said, having birthday parties for your children or your grandchildren. Jesus is condemning an attitude that deals with others in a purely mercenary matter or manner. Uh, and, you know, I do this for them. They do this for me. Now, and, and I've known people who have basically managed all their relationships on a spreadsheet. They owe me this because I did this. They did this for me. Oh, man, now I got to go do something for them. Right. Uh, and, uh, and now there may be certain political realities to our jobs. Um, and things like that. But Jesus exhorts us not to define our relationships with people in this way. If we are only doing good to others in order uh, to receive an earthly reward or some form of reciprocation or favor from them, well then, that is our reward. That's it. What we get out of them for that, that's the reward. We should not expect anything more from God. But true generosity gives to those who cannot repay us because generosity is a sacrifice. But as Jesus says, it is not that we will never be repaid for that sacrifice. As Proverbs 19 says, and Jesus declares here, when we give to the needy, we are actually lending to God who will repay us in the end. And so in this sense, generosity is a sacrificial investment in the Lord. And he's good for it. What this means here is that Jesus is giving us both clarity and a challenge. Jesus is giving us clarity uh, in, uh, in that when we have friends and family over and vice versa, we are free to enjoy our time together as in mutual fellowship and love and give God thanks for it. We don't need to feel guilty about it. We also know that there is no reward as if we have done something good, something noble, something virtuous. Uh, in some gatherings and interactions with people are simply mutual benefic- mutually beneficial, and as such, they are gifts from God. And so we just need to give thanks for them. Other gatherings or interactions with people where we give expecting nothing in return from those who cannot repay us is true generosity, which God says he will reward. So there's clarity here in how we understand our interactions with others. But there is also a challenge here, because Jesus is not merely clarifying our thinking, uh, but he seems to be encouraging us towards this behavior. Now, I actually know of a pastor who read this passage and literally went out and did this. He went and planned a fancy meal. He went and found a bunch of homeless people, bought them a bunch of clothes and went and they had a great meal and it was a great time. And, and that's fine. That's fine. But I, but I don't actually think Jesus is saying that's what you need to do. It's, it's, like, it's saying, yes, maybe that's something in a specific context that needs to be done in certain, in, in certain times. But there is a cultural context here that we need to take into account. Um, you know, our society does have social safety nets that the poor in the ancient Near East, or the ancient Near East, could only have dreamed of having. Okay, um, but even, uh, but you know, even Jesus is not saying that he's, you know, he wants everyone to go throw dinner parties and just bring the poor in, and that that's all he wants his church to do. Rather, um, it is it is better to see here the principle 
of generosity, of what true generosity is, and to seek ways in which we can be truly generous to others by caring for those in need who cannot pay us back. The scriptures teach us further that this would begin with those who are in need that are of the household of God, and then also that are those who are in need who are even outside the household of faith. And so we have a clarity and a challenge here because how we approach others matters. And Jesus does want us to abandon any kind of like, you know, column spreadsheet type view and how, of our relationships. And, and that if we give, and he encourages us to be generous, to give to those who cannot repay us, to know that the Lord will pay us back. The Lord will bless us. And so our standard then is always how God approaches us. That is our standard for how we approach others. How has God approached you and I? Because treating others in this way is to follow in the pattern of God. For God cares for believers and unbelievers with what we like to call common grace. This is not saving grace, but a common goodness, a beneficence. He cares for us in ways that we can never repay him in his daily provision for us. Which of us is able to repay the daily kindnesses of the Lord? Our food, our shelter, our clothing, our transportation, the machines that we have in our homes that we take for granted. Can you imagine if you had no washing machine and no, like some of you are like, yeah, I grew up without that stuff. But, but, but we forget how easily we forget that we have all these machines that do so much for us. And we complain about, oh, I've got to go load the machine that washes the dishes for me. I have to go load the, the washer that's going to wash the clothes for me. It's like, I would much rather take that when think about the bucket and that thing where you got to, you know, do that thing. You're like, and then go hang it out to dry stuff. You know, it's like, all right. And if this is true for us in a common sense, how much more is this true for us as believers? Which of us could ever repay God for the sacrifice of his son? Which of us is not a beggar of grace and mercy to whom the Lord has has not lavishly poured out his goodness, patiently borne with us in our stubbornness and gently bound up our wounds? God gives generously all the time in ways that cannot be repaid, in ways that we cannot even truly account for. And this is especially true for his children. We are not expected to pay it back, but as the saying goes, we are expected to pay it forward. Now, I am, um, now if I'm someone who is used to dealing with people in a kind of a, you know, a column spreadsheet type manner, um, then, you know, who owes me and who I owe and deal with people in that way, then this way of approaching relationships, of giving without expecting in return, is terrifying because it forces me to relinquish the thing that I am desperately want to hold on to, which is the illusion of control. That's why people do that. Right? They have a spreadsheet in their head of what they owe and what other people owe because it gives them the illusion of control over the relationships around them. It requires us, and this way of approaching it, as Jesus tells us, it requires us to try to give up 
to give up trying to squeeze benefits out of other people and to give to others and trust God for the results and for the repayment. But Jesus says this is the way of his disciples. This is the way of his family. And secondly, Jesus challenges us to think about how we respond to God in verses 15 to 24. And so he began by giving some advice about how to throw a banquet. And now he gives us a story about a banquet. Jesus switches in the full parable mode and he tells a story about a wealthy man who was planning a wedding feast, essentially, and, and to which his guests rudely excuse themselves. Uh, um, and so he goes and has other guests found to be brought into his house. Now, the story here is fairly straightforward, but there is one detail that is helpful for you to know that really will help you understand the impact of Jesus's parable. And it is this. When a party was thrown in the ancient world, there, were no, there was not one, but two invitations. Uh, the first invitation is kind of like what you're used to getting when you're invited to a wedding. You get a little respond, s'il vous plaît, card, right? A little RSVP card. How many are in your party? Are you eating the chicken or the fish or whatever it is, whatever the food is? And they do that because they need to know how many people are coming and how much of what kind of food to have ready, right? They need to know, they need a head count to make the appropriate preparations. Well, at this point in the story, the RSVP card has gone out and been returned. And, and so now everything is ready. The wedding's ready to go. And at this point in the ancient world, you would send out a second invitation You would send out a servant to go to all the people invited and say, hey, everything's ready, party's on, come on and join us. So bear in mind that these people who start giving excuses, they had already committed to go. They had already said, yes, I have it on my calendar. I will be there. Sign me up. And, and And what this detail does is it puts the excuses that are given here in their proper light, which is that the excuses are lame and actually inexcusable. The first guy says he bought a field and now he needs to go see it. I'm not a real estate expert, but generally speaking, you should see things before you buy them, right? In the ancient world, this would have been unheard of to buy a field without ever having seen it. And besides, you can't do that and still make dinner, right? The second guy bought five yoke of oxen, which is a lot of cattle for one guy to buy at that time. And, uh, and again, nobody would do that in the ancient world. No one would buy five yoke of oxen and then go check them out. One author who studies this stuff in detail, particularly in Middle Eastern context and um, uh, in history, he said he compared it to a, a guy explaining to his wife that he just bought five used cars and now he needs to go find out if they're going to start. That guy's sleeping on the couch, right? Because either this guy is a fool 
Or as one author put it, he's rich and probably lying. The third guy doesn't even ask to be excused like the first two did. He just cites the fact that he just got married as an excuse. Now it's true that the law exempted men from war service for one year after they got married. Which is pretty great. Encourages people to get married. I don't have to go fight for a year. Awesome. Alright. That doesn't mean you get out of every social obligation. Right? Sorry. Can't go to work today. Why? Just got married. It's like, sorry dude. Don't work like that. In the end, the excuses here would have appeared extremely lame to Jesus' audience. But they're more than just lame excuses, weak and flimsy. They, uh, they, they actually remind me of the, the cliche of the girl who gets asked on a date by a guy she doesn't like, and she says, I can't go because I'm staying home to wash my hair. Right? She's communicating more than that she's unavailable. Right? That's what these excuses are like. They are hostile and disdainful to the host. They clearly do not want to go, and they're communicating their disrespect to the owner, to the host. They are bending over backwards to excuse themselves and insult the host at the same time. And so the dishonored host, in his anger, rejects his previous guests and tells his servant to go out and to bring in the poor, which was unusual, but then to bring in the crippled and the blind and the lame, which was flat out unheard of. I mean, if you think about uh, recently recent events, the the um, the migrants who were who were flown over to Martha's Vineyard recently, it's that kind of a picture. They're like that is that is out of context. You know, one of these things is not like the other. And the servant does it, but he says there's still room. This was a big party. And so the master tells him out to go to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in because his house needs to be full. But why do people need to be compelled? You know, why don't they just come in? Well, uh, it's, it's noted uh, that um, uh, uh, someone who's just out on the highway like that, especially someone who's poor, and they get approached to be invited to a party at a mansion, especially in that ancient world. Uh, one author said they might spend the first 15 minutes refusing because they're like, there's no way I'm actually getting invited to this thing. It's too good to be true. And so by compel, it means a servant would gently grab them by the hand or the arm and say, no, come with me. You need to come to this party. It may sound too good to be true, but it actually is. But now that we have the story in our minds and get a sense of what, what's going on here, uh, we can try to understand it in which we find a warning and a promise about the kingdom of God. There is a twist at the very end of this parable in verse 24. And it's hard to catch it in the English. It's impossible to catch it in the English, actually. But it's there in the Greek. Verse 24, Jesus is finishing the story up, and he, and he seems to be speaking for the master. <clears throat> in the story, but in the story, the master is speaking to a single servant. And then, and then at the very end, it says, For I tell you, right, that those men who are invited shall, shall not, not, you know, never taste of my banquet. The problem there is that the you that Jesus used is, is in the plural. This is no longer the master speaking. In the parable, this is the master speaking of heaven. This is Jesus speaking. 
He's saying, I'm, this is essentially him saying, but I'm telling you all here that those who reject the host and his invitation will never taste of my banquet. And it is not a coincidence that the kingdom of God in rabbinic literature was often pictured as a banquet. In fact, it shouldn't surprise us because this whole parable was occasioned by the fact that someone mentioned the kingdom of God and breaking bread in it. And so Jesus tells them this kingdom parable. And so the excuses here may have been amusing to Jesus' audience, which were the Pharisees and the leaders of the Pharisees, until they realized what he's talking about. We have pictured here God as the host extending an invitation to those who should welcome it. An invitation to the kingdom of God, to the Jewish people, and especially to the Pharisees. They've been invited into the kingdom of God, and the one proclaiming the entrance of the kingdom uh, has come into the world, and his name is Jesus. But instead of receiving the invitation, they give lame excuses, even hostility and disdain for the invitation, and thus insult the one who sent the servant. And those who reject the kingdom of God for lame earthly goods reject God and his Christ. This is the warning. Reject the invitation and you reject God himself. But there's also a promise here that while the Jewish leadership rejected the goodness of the kingdom, that good, that, that good news has thus been sent out into the world because God will fill his house. That good news has traveled the world in, in time, space, and history to come to you and to I. And though we are not worthy, and though we would also spend the first 15 minutes arguing that we are not worthy to enter into that banquet, we are, we recognize, the poor and the crippled, the lame and the blind of the story. But we are, like them, welcomed, even compelled to come in and to take part in the banquet of the king. All who receive the promise of grace in Jesus Christ are welcomed in, Jew and Gentile alike. So this leads us to the final question, the question which Jesus' parable leaves his audience and us as well, which is, Have you responded to the king's invitation? Have you RSVP'd to the kingdom of God and the banquet? Have you heard the good news of the gospel? Do you know that your sins may be wiped away? That you may be pardoned and made a child of the living God all by faith in his blessed son? Will you repent of your sins and turn to him? Or will you make lame excuses about all the things you need to check off on your to-do list first? And for those of us who have responded and have been brought in, do you realize that filling God's house is the work of the church? That he sends us back out as servants, going out to the streets and the highways and the hedges, gently compelling others to come in and join the feast with us. And I find it interesting that as we think about all that we've covered today, 
that the banquet Jesus commends his hosts to hold in the first part is the banquet that the master has in the second, in the parable. And that is the picture of the kingdom of God. If we seek to be truly hospitable and generous, then we must first receive the generosity of our God and our King. And then once we have, and as we continue to receive His generosity, let us go out and do good to those who cannot repay us and invite all who will come in that, they, that many more may be brought into His banquet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ we have the Savior who has brought us in, who has brought the lame, the crippled, the blind, the poor, sinners, unworthy to be invited, but that you have brought us in by your goodness and love. And so, Lord, we pray. We pray that we would respond to that invitation to enter in. We pray, Lord, that when once we have responded, that once we have come to faith in Christ, that we would be as those who go out as servants and bring others in also. That while they are not worthy, we can share our own unworthiness. And that we can share the good news that it is the Son of God who makes us worthy by His blood, by His resurrection. It is the love of the Father that renews us, gives us life, that brings us into the family of God. Lord, we pray that we would indeed rejoice today, that we would rejoice in the generosity of our God who provides for us not just materially but also spiritually and eternally. So Lord, may we rejoice and may we out of that joy, the overflow of our joy, may we go out and do good to those who you have called into our lives and brought into our lives that we may do good to them in ways that they cannot repay us. And Lord, what better way can we do that than to share the gospel of the living God? And we pray your blessing and direction and help to be with your people as we engage with this great and mighty work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.